0: You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw.
1: Live from the home of future pinstripe bowl champion, Minnesota Golden Gophers, it's the 252 Sports Talk Radio as done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett. joined by... I'm Chris Moore. What? And I... Yes, I still am. I'm still Chris Moore. Well, let's get the other one in.
2: And I'm Sam Mulberry.
1: Okay, Chris Moore, what are you doing here? I,
2: mean, yeah, I decided to wander back into this podcast. <laughs>
1: good that you just stumbled into this zoom session that we're recording exactly
2: uh, I, I just click on random zoom links till i find some place i want to be
1: man i feel like we've we, we don't have a starting 11 it's just a starting I I I. but i'm glad to have you back chris it's it's not been it's the good same to be back without you um we we should explain i mean you're you're just a busy guy you're a powerful figure on our campus but one reason <laughs> One reason we've excused you for a couple of weeks is you were very busy at the end of November. Can you just tell us a little bit about a a different kind of competition? What is Model United Nations and and how did it go this year?
2: Yeah, it it is a competition of a sort. And so I'm the campus advisor for Bethel's Model United Nations Club. And one of the conferences we attend is always the weekend right before Thanksgiving. It's a national size conference. There's about 90 schools there, about a thousand students. And those schools, depending on their size, register for one or more countries, and then we all show up and we create the U.N. And those schools become the ambassadors from those countries, representing various U.N. organizational bodies. There are general assembly committees. There are security council committees. There is the uh, International Court of Justice and all sorts of other things as well. And so we um, we spent four long days being the um, ambassadors from Pakistan and had a great time doing that. Uh, It is a competition nominally. Um, They do give out some awards at the end. The conference says explicitly, we would prefer not to give awards. Um, They treat this as a pedagogical exercise. But nevertheless, there is some awarding. I would liken it to sort of the Oscars or the Tonys, maybe, where um, the point of a play is not to win the play, but to Mm -hmm. play your part well. Nevertheless, we do like to recognize outstanding performance.
1: Okay, but what I hear is that's a competition because there are awards given and people are... That's true. So since you have previously tried to convince us that things like Jeopardy, chess, and video games are sports, is Uh modern United Nations a sport? I
2: kind of... It's a competition. Okay. I think I want to say it's not a sport.
1: The, the physical element is is minimal, right? You have to walk from room I, to
2: I've room. I've seen some delegates in um, fairly uncomfortable shoes sprint across large ballroom floors, but that's about as far as it gets. Yeah. Okay. So but you but pop-
3: to, to sort of keep your analogy going, we've seen Ginger Rogers dance backwards, but that doesn't mean that's a sport. That's still an art.
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So Chris, you said this year you were in Pakistan. What what are you next? I know there's a draft, another sport. There, there
2: is a draft. Yeah. Uh, I'm amused by how much like the NBA, the draft is. <laughs> I've, I've joked a couple of times about um, taking my high level pick and trading down for future considerations. I thought and, you meant
1: teams were tanking their performance. Just,
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately it's not. Uh, you can't tank in model UN. Um, although some schools seem to do that anyway. Um, but uh we will be, we got with the 27th pick this year uh, out of some 80 or so picks. We picked Spain and we're very excited about that. Is that a good um,
1: value for the, is that a value? Yeah,
2: I think it is. Like um, it's a, it's a country that's highly relevant in uh, the EU, but mm-hmm. um, for our purpose, our pedagogical purposes, one of the committees that's being staffed next year is a historical simulation. Dr. Garrett's historian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is uh, the security council in 2003. And so this will be the Security Council that deals with uh the ramifications of the invasion of Iraq uh and the fallout from, from that. And so that should be pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. So Spain's an interesting choice. You haven't often done European country. Kind of, I think Germany was the last European country to represent. Yep. Um, Spain is also a nation in mourning, I think, right now, because they it's a very, very highly acclaimed, much expected soccer team lost to Morocco, former colonial possession of Spain to an extent. Uh, that's a segue. Uh, let's talk about the Atlas world. Cup. Lions, baby. That's right. Um, so, Chris, I do want to talk about the actual sporting part of the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And so, we're going to actually, this is not, this can be a very light history and politics-y 252 episode. Mostly we're just talking sports today. but... Um, I have missed having you around because you are an international relations expert. And so I'm curious mm-hmm. if you put on that hat, what has struck you about the politics of the World Cup so far?
2: yeah, I, i'm I'm struck by the politics of the World Cup in the same way that I'm sometimes struck by the politics of the Olympics. And the analogy that i've I feel most closely akin to here is the Winter Olympic Sochi games. Hmm. Uh, there was this clear underlying at least in the West, at least in the United States and in Europe, this real discontent with the setting and the, the lead up to the Olympics. But yet once that Olympics began, there was sort of this weird sort of how much of that do we put aside and embrace the pure sport um, sport as sport and try and keep politics out of it. There really is, seems to be, seems to be a struggle with that in Qatar here as well. Uh, We know that the, amount of corruption necessary to acquire the games by guitar was enormous and that the actual human life lost was um was unconscionable uh to develop this olympics and and yet and, and and the stain that fifa bears is 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 enduring and yet in the midst of the games themselves this is still some pretty fun soccer to watch mm-hmm. and so how do you make peace with can you make peace with that can you compartmentalize and I'd love to ask Will about that when he comes on later, too.
1: Yeah, we're actually going to talk to a real live soccer player. Will Swando is a Bethel student captain of our team. He'll be here in segment two. Chris, I'm, I think that's actually very, very well put. And it, it speaks to sort of the war within myself that I, I, I guess I felt like I, I didn't feel great about Qatar hosting. And maybe it it shows how powerful that sports purism kind of impulse is, right, mm-hmm. as we talked about in the class with regard to China. but. That um, it really is hard. Like once you're into the competition itself, like sports is inherently dramatic and appealing, and it touches on human needs and human longings. And we admire the, the athletes themselves. Like, and it, it does feel kind of nice to set the world aside and to just watch um, soccer for an hour and a half, right? Yeah. Like that. That's actually. I, I tend to. I tend to be suspicious of that when I step back as an academic and as a sports fan. Like, it's very hard not to feel that. It's way. so
2: seductive, isn't it? It's very it, powerful. It's,
1: well, let, let's talk about some recent events. Well, well, let's put the World Cup on hold briefly as we do. Okay. Worth the watch. Uh, Sam has been tasked with doing non-World Cup action in our three to C segment. So, Sam, uh, let's check in first on your recommendation last week. What did you recommend? A different kind of football for us to watch.
3: Yeah, so I said uh, Be- uh, Bethel's third round Division III, uh playoff football game against Mary Harden Baylor. Bethel lost 41-28, to which doesn't sound like a great game. But I don't know if either of you watch this for the most of the third quarter ending in the fourth quarter. Bethel was on one long sustained drive that ended in a fourth quarter touchdown to put them up uh, 28-17 with about 13 minutes left. And it felt like, oh, my goodness, we are going to win this game. And then we watched it kind of collapse um mm-hmm. really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh so it was it was definitely a I, I very much enjoyed watching the game until the fourth quarter. And then, you know, it's it's heartbreaking. Uh, you know, especially because you're watching that and knowing the players. So so that was that was I, I'm I'm glad I watched it, but it was not the result I wanted. Uh Chris, uh our, Andy, I think excuse me, Andy the... had handy head picked.
2: I'll stand in for Andy Bramson here. Had
3: picked uh, Ghana versus Uganda. Uh, or excuse me, Ghana versus Uruguay. I can't read today. Mm-hmm. Uruguay won 2-0, but neither team made it to the group uh out of group H thanks to a last minute goal by South Korea over Portugal. Uh and Chris Garrett's picked Croatia. Uh, so is
1: that was that worth the watch? We need, we need um, to a yeah.
3: Oh, we need to actually do scorekeeping. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna say no only because we always say yes. So I'm gonna say no to that.
1: I I think it's worth it. I didn't watch it, so. I think it's worth it because if you want to, I don't know if Ghanaians believe in schadenfreude, but the side of Luis Suarez weeping because Uruguay didn't make it to the knockout rounds in his last World Cup probably felt kind of good at some level. Okay,
3: we'll call that worth the watch then. Uh, Chris, (laughs) I'm easily swayed here. Chris, you had Croatia (laughs) versus Belgium. A nil-nil draw sent Croatia through. Uh, They won their first knockout game after... Uh, After it was 1-1, they won on penalties against Japan. Uh, Lots of missed second-half chances by Belgium. Um, Chris, I'm going to actually ask you if this was worth the watch. I know you you thought very highly of this Belgium. Well...
1: (laughs) So it's worth the watch in the sense that as far as a nil-nil draw can go, it was fairly exciting at the end. It was not worth the watch. If you had picked Belgium to go all the way to the finals and you watch Romelu Lukaku miss like three point blank chances to score the one goal that would have sent Belgium through. And basically, I don't know if it's the end for all of their golden generation players, but man, they, they sure like old and disengaged. Like Yeah. I mean, Belgium lived up to its reputation of being a great team, number two in the world right now, that never does well in big competitions.
3: I think we need to, now I'm speaking to the soccer community because I'm not part of it. Mm -hmm. We need to reserve the phrase golden generation for after they win something. Because there's a lot of golden (laughs) generations that never win anything. That's not gold.
1: (laughs) No, it, it is it is not. It's not even bronze in this It's case. a pyrite it's, generation. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, Chris, you didn't have a chance to recommend the three to see, but I'll ask yep. you I don't know how closely you've been watching the World Cup. Have you had a favorite match so far?
2: You know, I've... I've watched some but not not extensively. I really was uh, because of uh, Andy Bramson, I got sucked into supporting the Senegalese side um in some of their early matches and so um I do have a question for you as it pertains to um countries like uh, like um Uruguay Uh, Countries like Senegal, Mm -hmm. in some cases, Croatia is actually a great example of this. Mm -hmm. Croatia-Japan is a great example of this. I watched a little bit of that match. Um, There's an enormous population disparity in -hmm. Croatia-Japan. Do you find yourself where you otherwise don't have a rooting interest (laughs) uh, defaulting towards small country uh, bias?
1: i i do i I thought we'd actually talk about this with will swanda because he has a different way of watching these matches and we actually were on different pages of that match because of it i I tend to root for small countries he has a different criterion that we'll ask him about Um, yeah it is it's kind of remarkable i I actually i um my son and i were watching an earlier round match of the world cup during thanksgiving and we got to this conversation about which small country is the best at sports and not just at a mm. single sport, but like at multiple sports. And so, I don't know if I can call this up on the fly, but I actually, because I'm me, went through Olympics. Of
2: course, you did history,
1: <laughs> and I pulled out. Um, country... wait, wait,
2: wait, wait, wait! Before you say anything, I have some guesses. Can we, can we guess?
1: Well, yeah. Can I explain what I did? The, the yeah, map? yeah, yeah. Please, okay. please, please. Yeah. So all I did was I I, I went through like medal tables. Oh shoot! No, I picked up the wrong one. Um, we'll see if I can actually do this. I might not be able to pull it off i'll have to do it from memory um but basically for team sports in the olympics so sports where you have like a fairly large oh, roster with just one medal right it's so not like pairs things or gymnastics team events but like the actual team events and the countries that do the best oh i mm. wish i could figure this out um you want to guess which countries did the best based on this grade based on you, this uh format? You, you
2: you messed me up when you said teams because there's a number of, of small countries that consistently produce great individual athletes. You right. think about Jamaican sprinters, for example. And although Kenya isn't a small country, um, it's, it's, uh, body of work of distance running is exceptional, right? Sure. Um, but I was actually going to go towards some of the Northern European countries just because of their relative size and their relative prowess in the Winter Olympics. And so I think I was going to well, guess. Precisely- what's- it I was mean, doing Switzerland actually. But then, but then I guess. thought sort of about, start playing with like the numbers and thought, I wonder if at some point maybe there's been like a sailing medal for San Marino or something like that. And maybe that's because that would, you know, just the utter size might throw it off.
1: Yeah. Well, and so I mean, because of my methodology, I'm I'm kind of messing with you because the only team event in the Winter Olympics is ice hockey. Oh, right? and of course, okay. sailing is not a team event. So here's uh, Fiji actually does the best. Precisely, only because it has won three rugby medals in such a tiny country. But if we throw that out, Iceland has won one medal over time. But if we actually like, you know, not that kind of like sample size thing, Hungary does the best. It has won 22 team medals, mostly in water polo with less than 10 million people, followed closely behind by Sweden, Finland, and Norway. Even, I mean, setting aside like the winter individual events, they do very well in a variety of sports. So that, that kind of makes sense to me. Um, Serbia, Croatia, Yugoslavia, then is next. Yep. If we okay. Put it in. So it, it, you know, it actually, it speaks to the fact that the Olympics are geared towards European-dominated sports, probably most of all. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, that kind of matches my sort of image. Those are prosperous countries with pretty sophisticated systems for identifying and training athletes and That's exactly sports, right. right I mean, that's mostly what it is plus i think we have this image like those are healthy kinds of populations right like they're outside they take fitness seriously <laughs> that actually has anything to do so there we go we, we I actually I,
2: i'm a big believer in institutions and if you have a um a comprehensive public school system that's good at selecting talent this is how jamaica figures out where the best sprinters are they they, they squeeze the max amount of sprinting out of their student population yeah. it's the same thing with winter sports in in norway
1: Okay, one more piece of evidence that I'm I am obsessed with ranking countries and individuals. Let me give an update on our hippos World Cup bracket challenge. Uh, so this is after the quarter fi- or after the round of sixteen. So we still have some mm-hmm. points available. In fact, I think it'll all come down to the finals based on how the brackets look. But number one right now is Dr. Matt Kukum who I don't believe is actually a fan of what the world calls football. Chris, did you hear how Matt shows? He's 106 points right now. He's five points up. Did, Did you hear how he went about this process?
2: No, but it wouldn't shock me if he chose based upon um kind of the Monty Python style philosophers football match and he just picked his his favorite political thinker from each uh from from each country. And that would have been a
1: far more enjoyable way to do it. No, he actually cheated and went to five thirty-eight dot com's rankings of the, of the Oh shock. It's such a spoil sport. Shock. Right? Yeah, and it, it does speak to the fact that well, there have been some fun upsets in this World Cup, basically good teams are doing well. And so, yep. not surprisingly, he's winning. Uh, tied for second, two of our students. Uh, political science student, Laurel Stephenson. Mm-hmm. Tied. With 101 points with our segment two guest, Will Swanda, who's a history and missional ministries student and a soccer player. So you'd expect him to do well. Uh, I'm in fourth place with 96 points, but it's not going to be get job better by you. for me because uh, my bracket is now decimated because of Belgium, Denmark, and a few other countries. I'll pick up a few points if Brazil wins at all, but that's about it. My son Isaiah is two points behind me at 94. Uh, Dr. Branson is sixth with 89 points. And Chris Moore, you are in eighth place with 85 points.
2: Yeah, respectable all right it's fine
1: so I, I think it basically comes down to uh will a south american team win and will it be Argentina or brazil will decide the winner of our challenge because that's yeah. where you get some some variety in the, in the brackets all right well that 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 teases i think they say in the business sam segment two where we will talk to will Swanda, history missional ministries major bethel uh men's soccer team captain and get an insider's perspective on what's sometimes called the beautiful game back in a second week in sports history. San Diego, California, December 7, 1937. The minor league San Diego Padres sell 19-year-old sensation Ted Williams to the Boston Red Sox. The upfielder debuts with Boston in 1939, finishing fourth in MVP voting as a rookie, and two years later becomes the last player to hit over 400.
2: New York, New York, December 7, 1985. The greatest two-sport athlete in American history, Bo Jackson, wins the Heisman Trophy. After he's drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, however, the running back switches to baseball, joining the Kansas City Royals as an outfielder. Jackson becomes an American League All-Star in 1989. The same year, he rushes for nearly 1,000 yards with the Los Angeles Raiders.
1: Bradford, England, December 9, 2000. Tottenham Hotspur defender Ledley King scores against Bradford City just 9.82 seconds after kickoff, setting a record for the fastest goal in Premier League history that stood until 2019. It was one of just 14 goals the King tallied in 323 appearances for Spurs.
2: Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, December 8, 1987. Flyers All-Star Ron Hextall becomes the first NHL goalie to score a goal when he flips the puck the length of the ice into the empty net of the Boston Bruins. Hextall never scores again, but he will win almost 300 games in his NHL career and later serve as general manager of both the Philadelphia and their in-state rivals, the Pittsburgh Penguins.
1: The zone. one's come back, flip it from their side to center in on Hexball. He blocks,
0: wants to shoot it to the open net. He has scored! Ron Hexball has become the first player in the history of the National Hockey League, the first
1: goaltender to actually score a goal. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Welcome back to this week's episode of the 252. We're wrapping up our three-part mini-series on the World Cup, and you've been listening to three people who have never played real soccer talk about the world's most beautiful game. We thought before we said goodbye, we should ask an actual footballer to come in and give us an insider's perspective on soccer. So to that end, welcome Will Swanda to the 252.
0: Thank you very much. It's super exciting to be here.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, Will, I've already said a little bit about you in the first segment, but I'll give a slightly more detailed introduction. Will is a history and missional ministries major here at Bethel, class of 2024, and maybe more to our point, is one of the captains of the Bethel men's soccer team, which had a very successful year this year. Can you talk about how things went in the uh, 2023-22 season?
0: Yeah, absolutely. we, uh, we had a little bit of a shaky start, I'm not going to lie, um, but we finished very, very strong uh, in MIAC play. I think we won four of our last six, um, and we qualified for the playoffs for the first time since 2004, mm-hmm. and it was our first playoff win ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we skated through the first round, which was awesome. So very successful season.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, Bethel has a reputation, I mean, long traditions in a lot of sports. Soccer, this is just yeah. the second playoff appearance?
0: Yeah, that's
1: yeah. correct. Yeah. yeah, so I mean a really significant achievement. And I know it was a it was a hard season for you personally, right? You were battling an injury for at least the first part. I don't even know if injury describes it right.
0: Yeah. Um I uh I developed something called compartment syndrome, uh, yeah. which can be quite scary. So we had a incredibly fast tracked recovery. Um the athletic training team was phenomenal, but uh yeah, I made it back uh mid-October, so I missed the good the first five-ish weeks okay well
1: maybe let's uh, back up a little bit well wh- how did you get into soccer in the first place how when does your when does your competitive career start <laughs>
0: um i mean competitive career versus when mom and dad put me in the why uh, soccer <laughs> is is very different uh i uh i started playing around two two three like why just needing something to do on the weekends for mom and dad getting the sun um But uh, I I started playing competitively, like mid-elementary school. Um, I grew up in Edina, so I started playing travel for Edina Soccer Club very young. Um, And then I switched to a a Minneapolis-based club called Keelix uh, in middle school. And I played for Keelix through high school, played for Edina High School. Now here we are playing collegiately for Bethel.
1: Okay. And what position do you play?
0: I play center defensive mid. So I, uh, I would describe it as kind of like, it, w- it would be like quarterbacking, but still getting to, to join the attack a little bit, which is really fun. I just yell, basically.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I went to one of your games at the end of the season. I, I, I kind of forgotten just how much uh, loud communication there is. I don't think that's something you really pick up watching it on TV, but it's a big part of the game.
0: Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, communication, especially when you go to a professional game. Um it get lost it gets really lost sometimes because of the crowd. Um, and so I I watch these World Cup games and I have no idea how how they communicate because it's so loud. Um, it's really fun.
1: I mean, in a sense, like your your story I think is tied to the history of the World Cup. And then in 1994, the US hosted the World Cup for the first time. And in many mm-hmm. ways, like it didn't just lead to the MLS, but really I mean, youth soccer have been growing in the '80s, '90s, but it's really, especially after '94, yeah. you see this explosion where soccer really starts to overtake. Certainly, baseball, maybe basketball, American mm-hmm. football is, is like the youth sport. I mean, was that your sense? Was there just like all sorts of people playing youth soccer when you grew up?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think what's what's fun is I, as you mentioned, I'm I'm in the post boom, and so mm-hmm. it it was really interesting to like see people as they started to specialize later. Um, how everybody starts with soccer and even now um, I can kick a ball with just about anybody because most people have played some level of soccer around my age. And so people are just comfortable with the ball at their feet. And it's really fun.
2: (laughs) Will, do you find that that's changing people's attitudes towards soccer as well? There seems to be this latent cultural lag in American sports acceptance of soccer that a lot lot of a whole generation has played soccer extensively but professional soccer has been slower to make inroads into the culture of the United States do you think that's changing
0: um I think very very slowly and very delayed um the hardest thing that I find about the the cultural acceptance of professional soccer is in comparison to I think the American games we're accustomed with It's very slow and it requires your attention the whole time. Um, So if you're not playing it and you're not super invested in what's happening, it's, it can be a very tough watch because there's no breaks and you have to understand what's going on in the game to really enjoy it. Um, As opposed to basketball, we know like what a dunk looks like. And when somebody dunks it, it's very, very like entertaining, and it happens a lot where with soccer, a zero zero draw can be a phenomenal match, but you need to know what to look for. Mm-hmm. And so very, very slowly, as people are more and more familiar with the game, I think it comes, but culturally, it's very slow
1: well, maybe let's get a little bit of insight there because we're now entering the quarterfinal round at the World Cup. Maybe more people are going to mm-hmm. start paying attention now. What advice do you have for Americans who are maybe novices to this kind of football of like how to watch? Because you're right. It's not the kind of game where like goals obviously are important, but they're at a premium. Mm -hmm. I mean, what should you look for uh, that that gives you a hint about how how a team is doing in the game? Because it's not even necessarily possession, right? You could play with little possession Mm -hmm. and still actually be playing a good strategy.
0: Exactly. Um, You bring up possession. Yesterday, Spain played Morocco in the round of 16. And Morocco beat Spain and Spain passed the ball something around a thousand times. Mm. Uh, Morocco had 20% possession the whole game and Japan did the same thing to Spain. They had 18% possession. Um, and so watching those teams, there's a lot of beauty in understanding how they counterattack and um, how they defend and then they burst. Um, and so I would encourage American fans that are novices um to take a step back and maybe not focus on like how people are attempting to score um but watching how it builds <clears throat> excuse me mm-hmm. because with the teams remaining there's a couple possession based teams there's a couple teams that will just fly down flanks in an attempt to create something uh and every team plays different and Most of them play different depending on what continent they come from or what country they come Mm. from. Mm. Um, And so there's a sense of national pride in the way that teams are playing. Mm. And that's the beauty I think that's really found in the game is a team like Morocco is going to play incredibly different from Argentina, incredibly different from France, and all of them have a viable chance to win. Mm. And that's what I look for is the differences in how people play because the nuance is the beauty of the game.
1: Well, it's interesting, I think, certainly in the in the class in history and politics of sports that you've taken, that Chris and I have taught, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we talk about the relationship between nationalism and sports, and this can show up in a lot of ways, but I think this is intriguing, right, that there might be a national way of playing what's really a global sport, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, the way you play, approach soccer, actually says something about your national character or something. I mean, I know you're a huge fan of South American football. What What's distinctive of, say, Brazilian or Argentine um, soccer?
0: I mean, if you've watched any of Brazil so far, I think there's just so much flavor and creativity to it. Um, It's fast, it's arrogant, it's pretty, it's creative, right? Um, And that's going to differ from a team like England, who historically, um, it's been boot and chase, and that's changed as... We've talked about globalization in sports. Um, That has definitely changed as the the English game has become more globalized domestically. Um, But like the Brazilians, South American football is just so beautiful and creative. And it's about how you can express yourself in the game, not necessarily about, the power behind a force of a group trying to score. And I think that that sense of self-expression is such a wonderful thing to witness as an athlete, especially because the American game doesn't have that.
2: <laughs> Actually, well, I wanted to follow up on that because um, you did a, you use some really nice terms to evocatively, evocatively describe these different kinds of soccer styles. What would the American style be like? I know we're out of the tournament, <laughs> now, but is is there an american cultural style for our soccer?
0: Uh, that's a wonderful question. I think it's coming. Mm. Uh it's not we don't we don't have a definitive style other than uh I would say the traditional american athlete. We are incredibly strong. We're incredibly fast. Um and we like to foul people. Um mm. We we hit really hard and we run really fast, um, and so the American style I would argue is less about football at this point and more about athleticism. Mm. Uh, and so I think the American style is developing, but it will develop out of American athleticism. Mm-hmm.
1: One thing that's distinctive about, I mean, really all teams, but we'll stay with Team USA for a second here, is just how diverse it is in terms yeah. of national origins, mm-hmm. racial identity, right? I mean, is that something you observe uh, even at the youth level, at the high school level, at the college level? It, it, I guess I, it seems like soccer is maybe a better cross-section of an increasingly multicultural America than some other sports. Is that a fair uh, observation?
0: I think that's at the youth level in the united states i think it's one of the best things about it um i mean growing up i i played for a minneapolis-based club and we had dudes from every culture every background and because of the way that i was describing almost like soccer nationalism and the way teams play when you get dudes from different cultures they all play different and it's phenomenal to try to find some sort of syncretism out of that so here at Bethel um we have a couple dudes that are Latino Mm -hmm. and so they play a traditionally uh Mexican or South American style game and then you combine that with we have one one guy on our team that I play with in the midfield who's Nepalese and that's a completely different type of game uh our back line is a bunch of and I'm going to throw my brother under the bus here a bunch of big american brutes and they're all tall and they're strong my brother can kick a ball 70 yards and we use it um so when you get to combine the the multiple cultures on the field uh we we're talking about the brazilian style you can combine creativity like that with the american strong game and it's really it's a really really it's called the beautiful game for a reason it's I mean, it's awesome
1: so, well, I mean, you're—I mean—a very thoughtful, observant person, anyway. So, I can't blame this just on us. But having taken a history and politics of sports class, is it possible for you to watch World Cup matches just as sports, or do you find yourself uh, um, inferring or attaching other meanings to Morocco, Spain, France, England, <laughs> uh, et cetera? What's coming up here?
0: Oh, I am such a nerd. It's so impossible. It's—it's it's utterly. It is without a doubt the hardest thing to do to watch the game just for soccer's sake. I mean, so Spain, Portugal, Morocco, all in the same little corner of the round 16 is so interesting just because of land proximity, England, France, I think could be the most interesting game of the tournament, not just because of uh, football pro like power, just land Argentina and Brazil could meet in the semifinal and that's, incredible. I mean you take all these little pockets of history and uh I mean cultural history just in general England and France is going to be an incredible game just to watch. I would love to be a fly on the wall in the stands or just in an English or French household for that mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you told me yesterday at the end of class that you have a tradition of not rooting for European <laughs> teams in the World Cup. And I we didn't get a chance to follow up. I thought that'd be a good question for you. Why why do you root against, for example, in Morocco, Spain, why are you rooting for Morocco against Spain?
0: Um, part of it is soccer history. So there there's only eight teams that have won the World Cup. I cheer against those teams. Uh, mm. I like I like new covers and I think that's a very American of me to cheer Mm -hmm. for the underdog. Um, But also uh, I think when it comes to, to European soccer, it's what I'm familiar with. It's what I watch the most of. uh, And it's what the world classifies as the pinnacle of football. And when you see a team uh, like Morocco or Senegal, who has dudes that play in Europe, uh, come back and represent their nation. It's it's a really wonderful thing to watch uh, when Europe kind of gets shown up a little bit. And I think there's some sense of that in my own understanding and interpretation of history as well. And that's a different conversation for a different day. But when dominant European forces kind of get shown up by the rest of the world it's really fun to root for in a light-hearted sport manner it's very fun to root for historically countries that have always been at their under their thumb mm. uh so morocco beating spain yesterday phenomenal <laughs> um, <laughs> if argentina beats the netherlands and and i know argentina and the netherlands don't necessarily have a lot of history together, but either way, um, if Argentina beats the Netherlands on Friday, wonderful.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so.
1: Well, and you've got true. another reason, I think, to root for Argentina. Currently you were sitting <laughs> tied for second in the hippos table. And I think mm-hmm. for you to overcome Dr. Kukum, if I remember right, you predicted Argentina would win this whole thing. Is that right? And he predicted Brazil. So that might mm-hmm. actually be the hinge on which this turns.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, why, why should I, we expect Argentina
1: to win? Make the case for that team. <clears throat> okay.
0: I, I would expect Argentina to win, not because they're the best team remaining. Uh, I selfishly picked Argentina in an effort to almost manifest my ideal finish. Um, but I think, I think Brazil is absolutely the best team in the mm. World Cup. Uh, but the Argentinians will die on the field for Lionel Messi. Mm. Uh, and I'm a massive fan of him. I think he's the best player of all time. And I think if he wins, it's undisputed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Argentinians have so much passion for who they're playing with and the nation they represent uh, that come the semifinals, uh, if, they, if they go through and the Brazilians do, that that match will be just phenomenal in terms of representation of their nation and pride. It's especially especially because the Argentinians have a special pride for Messi. Uh and there's a running joke that one of their midfielders, DePaul, uh, is Messi's bodyguard because he's 6'2", 200 pounds, and he stands up and he stands in people's way for Messi. They're willing to die on the field for him. Uh they won't go down without swinging in.
1: Okay, so we we will know the results of all this in a couple more weeks. Uh, On the other side of all this is the resumption of club soccer. So I can't let you go without asking About your favorite club, Uh, Chelsea is currently sitting eighth in the Premier League, eight points out of the Champions League spots, coincidentally eight points behind Tottenham Hotspur, um, which is fourth place. Uh, What is your prediction for the end of the year for Chelsea? And then second prediction, will Christian Pulisic still be uh, wearing blue
0: after the January transfer window? Oh, mm, one. That was a backhanded throw, Doctor Gibbs. It was. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't you know. You didn't how talk much about Christian
1: the... Romero in Argentina. So I just. Had I to... don't know how
0: much of the audience knows how much of a Tottenham fan you are, but and most was of your backhanded. family. I
1: understand. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the entire rest of my family. <laughs> um, I predict this is a a learning year for Chelsea Football Club. Uh, new American ownership that has never worked within soccer is very difficult. Uh, sacking a fan favorite manager uh, just a few few games into the season is very difficult. And they splashed the cash this summer, and those guys aren't showing up. And I, I predict that this is a year that Chelsea will have to refine its identity under new ownership, new management. Uh, and thirdly, to answer your last question. Mm-hmm. I, I would not expect Christian Pulisic to be a blue mm. uh, by the end of the January transfer window. Mm-hmm. I have my own conspiracies on who we bring in instead <laughs> of him, but uh, I, I would expect Pulisic to either go to Manchester United or Newcastle.
1: Okay. <clears throat> Do you feel any better rooting for a team owned by uh, American uh, rich people as opposed to Russian oligarchs? <laughs>
0: I think there's some some comfort in understanding that, uh, especially given the current crisis in Ukraine, uh, that it it's better to not be owned by Russians. But man, do I despise American ownership at the same time. It's
1: it's unfair. We don't have another twenty minutes for that. I will have to have you come back another time and talk about ownership structures in the Premier League. Uh, Well, it's been great. I've learned a lot, and uh, I look forward to watching the rest of the World Cup. And I'm going to have to say, go Brazil, but go Argentina for the sake of Leo Messi. Yeah. Okay.
0: Thank you. We'll be right back Thanks. to wrap up
1: uh, the 252 and our World Cup mini series in just a second.
3: Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com.
1: Okay, we're running out of tape on the 252. Sam, we don't use tape, do we?
3: Uh, More than you think.
1: (laughs) Okay, let's let's end with three to see. I'll start. This Saturday afternoon, France and England renew an international soccer rivalry that goes back to the 1920s and a larger international rivalry that goes back to, well, the 100 years war. (laughs) The three Lions have defeated France just once since 2000, and they haven't prevailed over Le Bleu in a major tournament since the 1982 World Cup. But England goalkeeper Jordan Pickford has not allowed a goal since the opening match against Iran. Entering the quarterfinals, both squads have attackers in the running for the Golden Boot. Kylian Mbappe leads all goal scorers with five, while his teammate Olivier Giroud and Young English stars Bukayo Saka and Marcus Rashford are tied for second with many others, with three goals each.
2: Also this Saturday, we'll see the renewal of another traditional rivalry. I know, I know, I'm too deeply invested in college football, but this one seems appropriate for a political scientist. It's the Army-Navy game. Neither team enters with a winning record, so why should you watch this contest? Well, dating back to 1890 and played annually since 1930, the Army-Navy game opens a window into an era far removed from modern Division I college football. Nearly no one from the Army or Navy teams plays professional football, with apologies to the great Roger Staubach. These players will quickly transition to active service in our military, which brings me for my next reason to watch, nationalism. One way that nationalism can be observed is in the way that we turn the instruments of the state into objects of our veneration. Pay attention to the extra reverence the military receives during the Army-Navy game.
1: Man, nationalism, 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 Chris Moore. That's all all you talk. That's all I do. Sam, wrap us up. All right.
2: My three
3: to see is in progress, December 5th through the 17th in Madison House, Portugal. Uh, They are hosting the 11th IBSA Goalball World Championship. You guys know Goalball? I do, do, yes. Every four years since 1978, teams of blind athletes from around the world have come together to vie for the world championship in the quietest game in the world. Participants compete in teams of three and try to throw a ball that has bells embedded inside into the opponent's goal. Since the game was designed for blind competitors, it relies on hand-ear coordination, and the crowd is required to watch in total silence. The Russian women's team are trying to repeat their 2018 victory in Malmo, Sweden, while the Brazilian men are going for an unprecedented three-peat. Why am I so interested in goalball, you ask? Well, you happen to be listening to a member of the silver medal team of the 1991 Fairbow Lions Club goalball tournament. Yeah, I'm an athlete. It's no big deal.
1: (laughs) about you in segment two, Sam? That's right. Wow. Uh, How do they enforce the crowd has to be silent? Does that ever produce controversies?
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, they literally before, before, there's a lot of stoppage of play in goalball, but before the ball is put back in play, the announcer, kind of like in tennis, reminds everyone they need to be quiet. And anybody going to a goalball game understands that these are people who cannot see and have to rely on their hearing so it, it's it's not really a, a major issue
1: okay so that was the other thing i was going to ask i think you said these are teams of visually impaired athletes right there yes
3: but but being visually impaired doesn't mean you have no vision so right. all athletes are required to wear very thick blindfolds even because if, even if you have a little bit of of uh, light perception mm-hmm. that's an advantage so so uh, like me a sighted person can play the game because you're basically, your sight is taken away as you play.
1: I see. Okay. Well, thanks for teaching us a little bit about a sport we have not talked about, I think, on the 252. Uh, I would like to say when we'll be back, but this is the end of our little mini series. We don't know when we'll be back, but I guess that will just raise the suspense until the next time the 252 drops.
3: Viking so, yeah. Super Bowl?
1: Maybe? Oh, of course. I forgot about that. That was on my calendar and I missed it. So again, we don't
2: know when we'll be back. <laughs>
1: Okay. Well, with that, Chris, I'm glad you're back because you know how to add these things. Uh, wrap us up.
2: Sure. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, thanks for listening. Please check out everything else that's happening on the Channel 3900 podcast channel. Great stuff coming down the pipe. You can reach out to the channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. And until we're back in your feed with the hundred episode of The 252, thanks for listening and go boys.